The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to Big Technology Podcast Friday Edition, the show for cool-headed, nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. And we're here once again to break down the day's news, the week's news, as we will do every Friday. I'm joined, as always, by Ron John Roy of Margins. Ron John, welcome. Thanks for having me back here. It's great to have you back. So we're going to start this week's show. We have so much to cover. We're going to talk about accountability. We're going to talk about AI ethics and the fraught nature of what that field might bring and maybe the battlefield that we're going to see with that field. And then we're going to talk a little bit about some of the big stories with AI, the competitiveness with the tech giants and, of course, Microsoft's investment or potentially pending investment in open AI. Um, But last week we ended on a fun story. This week, let's start on a fun story. There's this company, Frank. I'd never heard of Frank. Had you heard of Frank? I had not heard of Frank, but I also have not been a student in a long time. Exactly. Okay, so Frank is a company uh, that sold to J.P. Morgan for $175 million. Essentially, it was lead gen for J.P. Morgan to reach younger uh, customers, students, and it exaggerated its customer base, at least according to J.P. Morgan's lawsuit that it's bringing by an order of magnitude of maybe 10. It really had a few hundred thousand customers, but it thought it had 4 million. And the, the lawsuit has some unbelievable facts uh, inside of it that Matt Levine really did a great job breaking down this week. Um, the overarching theme though here is that we're in an era of accountability that potentially we weren't in previously, where like in the past, it might've been a situation where it's overlooked or whatever. And now it's front and center. And this person, the founder of this company that sold it to JP Morgan, is is now getting sued. So what do you think about this? Did you what do you think about the story? What do you think about it in terms of what it what it heralds? Yeah, what when we say that the numbers were exaggerated by a factor of ten, I think that's understating just how crazy this story is. Um so for a bit more background, the Platform Frank, they said they had 4.3 million customers when they're sold to JP Morgan. JP Morgan had pressed them during the due diligence to provide them more information about this. At first, the founder had resisted under the guise of data privacy and user privacy. But then still, the JP Morgan pushed, so they had to come up with a list of 4.3 million users. So what they did they actually went out. First, they tried to have someone internally do this. That person ended up leaving the firm because they refused to. Then they went to a data scientist. And actually, we'll probably be talking about generative AI and chat GPT later. They used, they were, they were early adopters on this because they actually worked with a professor and using synth- basically to create synthetic data to take their data set of 300,000 actual users and create an entire new world of 3.1 million users. And that's what they submitted to JP Morgan to actually sell for 175 million. It's a pretty freaking crazy story. 
Yeah, there's so this, many questions to be asked here. How did this even get past J.P. Morgan's due diligence department? I mean, how did J.P. Morgan not not look at Frank's email addresses beforehand? If that's what was really something they were interested in. I mean, obviously, my first answer will always be ZERP because this still happened in but the. This hap- oh, it did happen days. during the ZERP, ZERP days. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 this happened. I believe it was 2019. Um, right, but. Even then, it's still it's a it's it's such a reminder that when an acquiree fits a very specific profile, again, J.P. Morgan trying to do things that are more innovative, trying to reach a younger user base, trying to reach the next generation of financial consumers, clearly will get a bit of ahead of itself and probably let certain things slide. Also, they did have an outsourced consultant that apparently did vet this and prove this during the diligence. Um, so Maybe they so, should sue them. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess in terms of intent from who really tried to defraud who, it's pretty right. clear from everything that's came, come Frank. out here. Yeah. And, and I think it's... It, the idea that they thought they could get away with it and they did is actually the most fascinating part to me that something that's so over the top and clearly fraudulent, the fact that a founder still went ahead and did this and tried to get away with it when clearly at some point you will be caught at some point. And I mean, and this, the story of how they actually were caught, JP Morgan did try to email 400,000 of the clients uh, of the emails on the list. I think it was about three quarters of them bounced almost. There was an incredibly low click rate, open rate. And from there, that's when they started to dig a little deeper. And the real question here is, are we going to start to enter this, this age of accountability, which I teased at the top here? There's a great story about this. First of all, the, the journalism on this has been unbelievable. It is always wild when a, a company buys something that really isn't very real or allegedly not very real for so much money. $175 million. That's crazy. But then typically, and this is something that Eric Newcomer brought out in, in his newsletter, typically what happens is founders will just distance or, or investors, acquirers will just distance themselves from the fraudulent asset. Think about, you know, a Quibi, not, not, not fraudulent, but not really real. <laughs> think about Quibi, right? It wasn't like, you know, they're, they're I, investors. Did not, I did not think Quibi would be coming up on this Friday, but I'm <laughs> yeah, glad we gotta you hear go the Quibi. Name. But like invest- go when, Quibi. when stuff fails really poorly or it doesn't really hit the way that investors think, usually the investors just kind of shirk away. But in this case, J.P. Morgan is, is suing. And uh, this is from Eric Newcomer. He says, these kind of lawsuits are so rare. I have to believe there are many cases where a public acquirer simply writes down their investment and tries to prevent shareholders from figuring out that the acquisition was an obvious mistake from the beginning. I wonder, and this is the key point, if founder accountability might get a jumpstart this year as the downturn in private tech continues to play out. That's a really interesting thought. I hadn't thought about it that way. And maybe Eric is onto something here. Yeah, I I will admit it's not off the top of my head. I did just Google it, but JP Morgan had $78 billion in free cash flow last year. So the idea that they would just normally write off some investment like this where clearly things didn't work out, clearly they were fleeced. Normally, I think in the last few years or five years ago would have been the case. I do completely agree that right now, I think there is a complete mindset shift where businesses realize that they have to start holding this type of behavior accountable. And it's because that this was allowed to go on for so long that this is happening. And again, I think it's clear from everything that's coming out 
just how obvious this fraud was. And I think that's why they chose to go after it. But I think we're seeing that in a lot of different arenas and technology now where things that were allowed to be slipped under the rug. Clearly, Theranos was the big story a few years ago, but there wasn't much else. I think we're going to see between this, we're going to see more and more instances where if it's just complete fraud, you're going to, I mean, they're going to go after you. So the ages, I mean, the, one of the interesting things that people are bringing up with this Frank story, again, so many accounts that weren't real, then getting effectively packaged into a product that JP Morgan bought was, didn't they know that this day was going to come eventually? I mean, is it indicative of the days that we've come from and to the days that we're going to that this type of stuff was allowed to happen? It's pretty interesting to me. What do you think? Yeah, I, I think that, so So in this case, from what I what I saw in the coverage, she had actually sued J.P. Morgan two days before they filed their lawsuit, so it appeared to be a bit preemptive. So, and clearly, more, the more that came out, there was a lot of bad blood that she had come in as the head of student solutions, and very quickly things went downhill once they started uncovering all of these fake email addresses, and it became essentially a head-to-head battle. So I think I think in this case again. There appears to be a bit of that back and forth where they may have just written it off if this did not get personal. But at a certain point, when the fraudster tries to come after you, once they actually fight back in some way, I mean, JP Morgan is not going to take this lying down. And and my my favorite part of this is in uh, her complaint, the founder, Charlie Javis, about JP Morgan, first of all, her lawyer is Alex Spiro who is Elon Musk's lawyer was or is Elon Musk's lawyer heavily involved in the Twitter uh, in the entire Twitter drama was reportedly a big part of the transition team when Elon took over. And let's remember he was on the other side of actually filing a lawsuit saying that Twitter was having fake users last year. So, I mean, clearly a litigator who is happy to play both sides. Um, But, but when you see all this coming up, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I mean, yeah. Alex Spiro, I feel there's going to be more that comes out that's interesting around just him as a character and all of this, everything that's going on in tech right now. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, I think the fact that JP Morgan is going after this publicly and aggressively, I mean, it's a huge sign that founders will be held accountable. And, and I mean, again, SBF, Gemini today, all of these other areas we're seeing people being held to account so let's move to those couple stories first of all spf and substack uh, spf is obviously not keeping quiet about the allegations against him he uh, spoke to one of my friends teddy schleifer at puck news puck, teddy wrote a terrific story about it and uh, he also started a substack i mean come on i can't even. that was astonishing so <laughs> I I, full disclosure i didn't read it i understand that he has a story to tell i've heard enough about it at this point and i didn't personally want to hear any more about it from him found it interesting okay he's doing a substack it was funny he initially was charging people or like had a paid option and then he's like oh that was a mistake he turned it off what what do you make of the fact that i mean is he's in this position and he probably i don't know maybe he should be talking maybe he shouldn't be talking it's it's interesting the traditional corporate playbook is if you're in a place of uh, uh being prosecuted don't talk but he has this view that he wants to talk and talk more. It's very interesting. Well, full disclosure, I did read it. 
I, I tried to trudge and power through it. And it was the same thing over and over. And, and again, you can try to argue that I guess the most generous interpretation I'll give is he has been consistent. He has, with a straight face, told <laughs> yeah. George Stephanopoulos, told, uh, I can't even remember who, oh, Andrew Ross Sorkin, whoever else, that I did not steal money. This was just a bet gone wrong. This was a leveraged exchange gone wrong. That happens, a London metal exchange a few years ago. Like over levered exchanges can go bankrupt, hedge funds can make bad bets. He just keeps saying it over and over. He keeps saying that there were letters of intent to fund FTX up to the tune of $4 billion right up to the bankruptcy. He keeps saying these same things over and over, even though everything has shown that they're just completely untrue. I mean, uh, Caroline Ellison, Gary Wang, Nishad Singh, everyone has been coming out. And it's clear in all the filings that are coming out that this was just fraud from the beginning. This was funneling money from FTX to Alameda and personally making political donations, buying luxury real estate, having, what is it, like $100,000 catering bills. Not, none of it was, you know, just a bet gone wrong. I'm sorry, this happens. This was just outright fraud in terms of actually, you know, misrepresenting to customers, saying your account is safe with FTX when you're just funneling the money over to Alameda. And he's, he's still just not answering that simple fact. Okay, so the investor Bill Ackman, and I'm okay, I want to get your take on this, uh, had a thread about this, and he said he previously had been accused of something and found out that, and it, it came out that he wasn't actually guilty of it. And we know that Caroline Ellison is guilty because she's pleaded guilty. We don't know about Sam. When you hear that, what do you think? So the Ackman thread I did read, the one bit of empathy, sympathy, I might feel for him is I do think the more I learned after the fact, I remember living through it, but being younger, Elliot Spitzer, and in terms of kind yes. of over overzealous for political purposes regulation, I do think, you know, he definitely pushed the envelope in the other direction. And so when you see that name, maybe Bill Ackman was the target of something that might have been a bit overzealous. However, Still, comparing that era of, you know, like hyper-regulation, really aggressive policing of Wall Street, Henry Blodgett being barred from the industry, you know, like whomever else, there was every number of cases that were going on. I mean, trying to compare that to today, this is what we're talking about. There has been no accountability over the last few years. So when regulators are going after you, when the SEC, when there's criminal complaints, I mean, right now, I think the it's very clear that there's a reason. The envelope is not pushed so far in the other direction where they're going after absolutely everyone. I mean, you are the biggest marquee fraudster of the moment. You're going to be a target. Now, speaking of targets, let's just do one more crypto story and then we can move on to some of the other stuff that we want to talk about. The, the Winklevoss twins, by the way, they're starting to, it's, I didn't realize, but it has become common lingo that people just call them the Winklevi, which is hilarious. Uh, like I heard them called the Winklevi on CNBC and I was like, oh my God, that like meme from the social network is now reality. They are in a bit of an issue. The SEC is coming after them for uh, their EARN program. And it's this convoluted relationship between them and this company called Genesis where people were effectively, imagine they loan their crypto out, they get 8% on the money. I mean, you have to ask, 
what? Why am I getting this 8%? I think that's one of the lessons we're learning with these crypto firms. And uh, ultimately, they haven't been able to uh, get the money out. And now the SEC is coming after them saying this was a security. What is your read on, on what's happening here? And is this sort of, are, are we at the end here of these type of things with crypto? Or is this still, are we still in the middle? I guess we haven't had Binance yet. I was talking about that with Kate Rooney from CNBC, who was on earlier this week. But what's your read, Ranjan? I mean, we're certainly in the middle because mm-hmm. Sam Bankman-Fried in that Teddy Schleifer piece is is still living a pretty uh, comfortable existence in a large Palo Alto home. The Winklevi are still tweeting. Like, I mean, I, we're definitely still well in the middle of whatever is going to happen. I do think maybe we're approaching the end game because this is the point where everyone is pointing the fingers at each other. Everyone, you know, the the good vibes of good morning, we're going to make it are long, long gone. And now it's everyone else is a crook. Um, And the Gemini story, I think it's very interesting because, as you said, Gemini, and it gets a bit confusing because there's Gemini and Genesis. It's really an annoying story to follow. I know, even reading through every article and trying to track which one is which is, is tough. So Gemini, they had their earn program, promised exorbitant yield. To get that yield, they lent that money to Genesis, um, which is under the digital currency group, Barry Silbert. Um, and then Genesis has had some trouble from the FTX fallout. They're not able to give that money back. And this is where you're getting letters between uh, Tyler Winklevoss and Barry Silbert and everyone saying whose money is who. And and that is, I mean, that's the one, all of this, Sam Bankman-Fried has $450 million of Robinhood shares. Does BlockFi get it in their bankruptcy? He's claiming that it's his and it's had nothing to do with FTX. There's all these pockets of money that's left and of, fiat money or Robinhood shares, which theoretically are liquid. Um, so so everyone is fighting over them. And, and the biggest thing about today, the SEC, or yesterday, once they filed this enforcement action against the Gemini, the thing in terms of accountability, this made my blood boil in terms mm-hmm. of Tyler Winklevoss. He, he was tweeting, and I, I copied this down, that this action does nothing to further our efforts and help earn users get their assets back. Earn is the program Gemini earn. This be- their behavior is totally counterproductive. And he says, super lame. It's unfortunate that they're <laughs> optimizing for political points instead of every. This is exactly what SPF is doing. Somehow you lost everyone's money. And now you're saying you are the one who should be entrusted to get back their money. And then the last one I noted in this thread of his, we look forward to defending ourselves against this manufactured parking ticket. Like, I mean, the the condescension towards the largest regulatory body of the United States government, it's so palpable there, but it is. It's You have not had any pressure. You just lost theoretically $900 million of your customers' money and still they're just not treating this as a huge deal, as a criminal deal, potentially. They're treating this as it's an issue. We're the ones who can get it back. And you guys are screwing up our efforts to do well by our customers. I mean, the way that they're talking, and I also copied down the part, the point where they were like uh, the super lame, I mean, talking (laughs) about the SEC, like it's residual from a moment where there wasn't accountability, but maybe what we're seeing right now is accountability is making a comeback, at least in some way. That's the hope. 
Do you yeah, think I, that that's the case? I think so. Uh, Matt Stoller, who, uh, of antitrust fame. Yeah, we got to get well, Matt on with us on one of these Friday episodes. Yeah, that, be that would be a yeah. fun one. Yeah. Uh, one thing I really have taken away from things he's written is that government needs to govern and has forgotten how to govern. And this is something for me over the last few years, I really think the whole attitude of deregulation, I mean, and obviously this extends to everything, airlines, we're seeing issues right now, whatever else, but especially around financial markets, this attitude of like you see it again, super lame manufactured parking ticket. They're calling out the regulator who has just filed an enforcement action against you and like making fun of them essentially because they're so used to not having any type of account being held to any type of accountability. And I do think, I think again, SBF, if he goes to jail with the uh, Winkle Vi, who is responsible financially? Um, does more stuff come out? We'll wait to see with Binance. And that's all in this area. But again, going back to Frank and JP Morgan, the fact that their founder is still aggressively coming out against JP Morgan and, and saying that uh, there's something around like JP Morgan just wasn't ready to help us, uh, uh, attracting a young, diverse new audience that they weren't ready to do that. Like just saying ridiculous things when you are under the microscope and like caught red handed around doing very bad things. I think once we see more action, this, I mean, this era of accountability will definitely be here to stay. We're here on a new Friday edition of big technology podcast. Ron John Roy is with us. We started doing these last week. It's a new thing we're doing in 2023. The flagship episode on Wednesday, where I interview newsmakers talking deeply about what's going on in their world is still going to continue, and we're also going to do these shorter ones on Friday where we break down the week's news, which is what we've been doing in the first half. If you like it, please rate us five stars on your podcast app of choice. And if you really like it, please stay tuned because we'll be back right after this break. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Have you been feeling the effects of stress, burnout, or anxiety at work? Workplace culture is changing, but we're not done yet. Listen to the Anxious Achiever podcast to rethink the relationship between your career and your mental health. Hear stories from psychologists, entrepreneurs, even athletes and celebrities. Learn how they balance success and ambition with staying mentally healthy and walk away with practical advice you can implement today. Get the Anxious Achiever wherever you find your podcasts. And we're back on Big Technology Podcast Friday edition, Ron John Roy is here with us, second week in a row. Great to have you, Ron John. Oh, you're you're muted. It's Friday again. Let's do this. Let's do this. So, um, by the way, we're going to do these live on LinkedIn every single week, uh, but I messed up the technology this week, so we're not live, but we're, I will post the live? video. Not All this right. week. No, no, we got, we got some yeah. questions last week. We did get questions. Yeah. So next week, I'll make sure to get it done. Um, join us. We'll be live 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 
8 p.m. Central European time, if you roll that way, like I am at the moment. <laughs> and let's get into the second half. So obviously, artificial intelligence is a huge topic of interest for anyone focusing in on the technology world right now. There was a really excellent piece by uh, Ben Thompson in Stratechery talking about how AI is going to impact the five big players. And there are obviously interesting things about apps on Apple being powered with new technology that can lead to things like image generation with an app like Lenza, thing like Meta using AI to do better targeting of ads now that Apple's cut off its ability to target precisely. One of the things that I found interesting reading through this article is Ben thinks this is a a real shift change, a shift change in the way getting the PC was, going to the internet was, moving to cloud was, moving to mobile was, and now there's this new shift. And of course, it feels big as we're watching it happen. If you've used ChatGPT, if you use Dolly, if you use anything of this nature, you realize that we're in a new world right now. But my question is, how much is it going to shake up the business world? Because we did we did have Aaron Levy from Box on a couple of weeks ago who really thinks that this is a sea change. And I know that you read Ben's piece, Ranjan. Did you think that it, it put the changes that we're going to see with this wave of AI into uh, the appropriate context. And it's also interesting that this was all happening all along the way. And not, right now we're talking about it because we have these generative use cases, but it's more than just the generative AI. So what's your read on on the magnitude of the shift here? Yeah, th- this is one area where, I mean, ben, Ben's piece, I think, is fantastic at really laying out the concrete use cases for where artificial intelligence is going to change these businesses. As you said, the, each company, each of the big five, Microsoft, Meta, Alphabet, um, everyone has their own, Amazon has their own specific use cases. And I do think this is going to completely change the way companies operate, business is done. Um, the Meta, again, they actually, Business Insider just had a really good uh, long piece around. It was like Meta's advertising business is back after the Apple tracking efforts in iOS 14, uh, I think it's now a year and a half ago, um, and losing the tracking abilities in their like advertisers and agencies are starting to say that it feels like it's back. And that has oh, been very, I was waiting very... for that story. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was inevitably, it's going to tick back a little bit. And then there's inevitably, inevitably going to be a story where someone writes, oh, everything's hunky-dory again because advertisers are moving a little bit of their spend there. But I think that's overblown. But go ahead. You think? All right. All right. No, I think it. it but theoretically, like, let's take a meta, uh, like just kind of like a heavy handed tracking, I like cookie based tracking, uh, app dev- or device based tracking that is going away, that we're moving away from that world. So instead, leveraging artificial AI to actually create models where still being able to create user profiles and still be able to target in new innovative ways, it seems theoretically possible. And if anyone is positioned to do it, I think they are. Um, the, obviously, the I think the, the one everyone is excited about and interested in is Google search versus, I mean, if Bing becomes a name and a player in tw- the 2020s that would not have been on my bingo card a year ago but uh um the i mean this idea that microsoft and we can definitely get into their relationship with open ai 
I mean, Satya Nadella is the GOAT CEO right now because <laughs> carefully fostering this relationship and having firsthand access to GPT-3, OpenAI, all their technology. And again, chat, we talked about this last week. Search will change. Search already has changed. Google search is a mess right now. But they've already started, Google is the famous one with snippets, trying to, without you going out to another page, try to extract what is the relevant answer to your query and trying to give it to you. I mean, large language models create an entirely new way of doing this. I still am skeptical about Casey Newton on your show saying that he will find a new pair of shoes via uh, chat GPT, but... I do think, I mean, this will change search. It, it's, it's inevitable. If anyone who's used the technology, being able to synthesize a large number of websites and then into a coherent, simple answer, I mean, that's what search, the promise of it always was. And it's going to change a lot of the internet because the advertising-based internet, click here, use Google to go to my website so I can run an ad against it. I think that's going to change and everyone needs to start preparing for it. Right, and Ben seemed most to be most pessimistic about the future of Google. But let me now stand on the side of Google and talk about why Google is actually going to be better. Of course, it's a more that the old Google search might be better, just for the sake of argument. Of course, it is going to be fun to talk to these things. But there is definitely a utility in being able to poke around different websites and do your own research because. Whether we understand it or not, part of our way of interacting on the internet is looking at different sources and making a determination of what we believe after we triangulate. That's, I think, an important part of using the internet. And that's going on for everybody. And if you have a chatbot you, that, that is going to get things wrong, and inevitably will, then you're going to end up, or it will present one perspective. Like, it's not going to sit there and talk you through all these different perspectives for every question you ask it. So... I do think that it's going to be it's going to be tougher than a lot of people imagine for that type of experience to replace the classic search. I think classic yeah. search is pretty evolved. However, on the other side, generative AI, I do think it's like most potentially malicious impact call it is going to be just millions and billions of websites and content created trying to game SEO and completely Google needs to change the entire way it approaches search in order to deal with the coming influx of just mass generated content. They've said in the past, like Danny Sullivan, their search liaison, we will penalize AI generated content. That was before ChatGPT was public. That was before, I mean, we will, like having used, played with this technology a lot. I mean, the idea that there's going to be very simple ways or even complex ways of being able to perfectly tell what is AI generated and what is not, I don't think is going to be feasible. And I actually think there's going to be a lot of good AI generated content, and that should not be penalized in any kind of search. So I think Google is going to have to rethink the simple idea because it was built on a foundation of a website that is on the internet has inherent value. Someone put effort into it and now we are going to rank these. And obviously there's always been black hat SEO and just, you know, content farm e things, but but I think the scale of that is going to change massively. Um so yeah, I do I do, I do think from a search perspective, this creates challenges on both sides for Google. On one side you have this idea that now your search query is returned to you in this highly personalized narrative form. And then on the other, 
the actual way Google search works, I think is going to be impacted. Well, you, you use the one argument that, that hurts the most for me and sort of back me into a corner because I've been the victim of this this week where I read, read your piece. Tell I us have about a story it. up on big technology uh, about a publication on Substack that was started up a week ago and on Saturday published a story that was a not a carbon copy, but a plagiarized copy of the story that I wrote about the creator economy the week prior using exact sentences, but also having remixed a lot of the content and spitting out this new article. And the interesting thing about it was the writer who put it together, who was anonymous, called themselves Petra, ended up admitting in the comments after this after this plagiarized post went to the front page of Hacker News, which is worth thousands of views to any publication. This person admitted in the comments that they had used AI to remix or for, to quote unquote improve readability. And actually they meant, you know, they, they never cited the fact that the original content was coming from me. So uh, on that point, yeah, I think that there's some serious, there's a serious issue with it. Um, I just would, I also wouldn't want ChatGPT to be like, oh, you want to learn about the creator economy? You know, here's a summary of what Alex just wrote. And then not having anybody come to my page, if that happens, I'm in trouble. And so is the entire, I mean, it, those type of applications really hurt the whole web, but yeah, no, it's no, going to no, be... It, it it it's changing everything. I I I really think. I mean, from a, as writers, we have to think about this. As Google, how they rank web pages, they have to think about it. Right. This, Cause no one's going to wait, raise their hand, and be like, "Oh, by the way, I used AI to write this." And Google, but, please derank me. That's yeah, the same yeah, thing yeah, with exactly, these. Exactly. Substack wouldn't take the wouldn't take the post down. The the AI generators had no way to find the person. So the traceability of all this, because at the end of the day, it's just text, is, is yep. really difficult. No, no, and... We're going to have to live with it. Who is to say that a person did not take your post and just rewrite it? Like, exactly. <laughs> I mean, the plagiarism has happened since since uh, the beginning of time. Um, so, yeah, no, no, I think it is really important that there needs to be like open, honest conversations around this right now, because it is going to change how everyone approaches just content in general. And I do think like, I mean, the Sam Altman, whoever else, they need to be leading these discussions. And I think the ethical considerations around this are huge. And, and, and I'm actually incredibly bullish on all this technology because as someone who has written very boring content projects i i can tell you there's a lot of the world and there's a lot of there's a lot of copy produced in the world that is not exciting for someone to produce and if the more that gets automated great however what are the other implications of this plagiarism someone rewriting your post i mean this stuff i agree that there needs to be we need to at least start thinking about what the guardrails look like did you see that cnet is now having ai write posts for it Straight up, write articles for CNET. Yeah, I, I mean, so I, I thought, so I had looked at, I've been like following this space very closely. Even years ago, there was, I think it was like 2015, there was a company called Narrative Science, and they, I think it was Reuters oh, yeah, or the Associated right. Press. Yeah. And again, Forbes they, also used them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but, and it made sense. Uh, earnings reports, sports scores, taking basically, but that was basically essentially a fill in the blank type of, uh, type of service. It's like we have these essentially what are templates. Earnings report comes out, 
give the headline. There's some if-then statements around if, you know, like uh, the earnings per share are lower than the estimate, you frame it in a more negative way. That stuff's been around for a long time. And in some ways, you could argue that, you know, ChatGPT is essentially a smarter version of that. Um, but but yeah, I, I do think, I think journalism and content providers will be incorporating more and more of this technology. And I think we just have to figure out what that means. I'm still a little skeptical, though, whenever anyone says there was definitely a while where, like, you know, this article was written by GPT and you're like, no, right. you, you spit you out a draft it. and then you edited the entire thing. But yeah. OK, conclusion of this is I do think, yes, Satya Nadella made some very smart bets with his closeness to OpenAI. And I'm about to speak with Todd Bishop about it. Todd is the founder and editor in chief of GeekWire. And it's the like Seattle trade publication that covers the tech out there. And I'm very eager to hear what, what his take is on, on the whole Microsoft situation, especially when it comes to open AI. So listeners, if you're interested, check that out this upcoming Wednesday, Todd Bishop coming on to, onto the podcast. But Ronjan, I agree with you. The Satya thing is he's well, obviously the GOAT CEO at this point. Yeah. So to put it into context, one of the most brilliant maneuvers, I mean, the, when I actually, I remember when Microsoft invested a billion dollars in OpenAI in July 2019. Everyone's interested. This is where, where are they going with this? Apparently, what happened was a good amount of that was Azure credits. We touched on this last week. It's brilliant because ChatGPT is the greatest marketing tool that has ever touched the space of language, large, large language models. Um, I mean, apparently, Google has a highly functional, uh, comparable. Well, that's Lambda. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, they invented the transformer model, which this is all based on. So they should be pretty mm. far ahead. But instead, suddenly every making open chat GPT essentially free, exposing everyone to this and branding yourself around it. Um, that has been an incredibly, incredibly expensive thing to do. But instead, what happens with Microsoft, the brilliance of this investment, they invest the credits to OpenAI. OpenAI uses those credits to build its brand. I mean, it's almost like, okay, this will be a stretch, but like a crypto firm giving tokens to uh, to its service as the uh -huh. investment dollars. Yes, but- Web3 was real. <laughs> this was Web3. It's a, yeah. Microsoft gave OpenAI tokens. They right. use those tokens smartly. And that's the reason everyone is talking about ChatGPT and not any other comp open source service. Google's still- private quiet with whatever it is doing so you i think know, that that, right. that move alone was brilliant you know that every cloud conference that's going to happen for the next two years is going to have a big azure advertisement that says use the tools that chat behind chat gpt or something like that yeah, yeah, yeah. and apparently apparently uh open ai before that investment was already spending 120 million a year with google cloud and then because oh. of that investment yeah it was in the information uh because of that investment switched completely over to azure and now i mean from a branding standpoint just overall again satya goat ceo so for our final topic we we don't have a lot of time but and we could probably spend a full show on this maybe we will in the future but let's talk a little bit about ai ethics because there is going to be a battle that goes on uh, pretty blatantly about what happens with the ethics of these models. And ethics in some ways is, of course, it's a good-natured way to make sure that they're not causing harm. But the undertone or the undercurrent of all these conversations is that people want to control what the models do. 
And there's going to be a battle, just like there has been in content moderation. There's going to be a battle about what ethics should these AI uh, models have. It's not just like, should they be ethical? It's what ethics should they have? And there's this post that Sam Lesson put together about how AI ethics is the most dangerous part of 2023 AI. And he talks about, he talks about, uh, he says, the more the morality limits that companies like OpenAI place on GPT, he says, I find the morality limits that companies like OpenAI place on GPT-3 so deeply troubling. It's a free speech problem, but a massive steroids where a small group of people are taking a technology slash a fundamental power and then centralizing the mortality, morality power of what it will and will not allow the tech to do. This is just a preview of what, what the big debate is going to be. I think content moderation debate is going away. I think the AI ethics debate is coming. And I'll just say what I think about it, and then I'm curious to hear what you think. But my perspective on this is that it is a little bit naive because when you create a model like this, you ultimately are making decisions about the content. Just like when you create an algorithm and you build in functions like the retweet and the like, you are making decisions about what to elevate or not. So you do have an influence on content. And the fact that you are the company that's making the product means that you are a small group of people that are influencing it. So this idea that we, should, we shouldn't put limits or we shouldn't have a discussion about it or there should be no content moderation, there should be no AI ethics. I mean, obviously, it's, it's naive. There's no should or should not. It exists. And that's the, that's the debate that's going to happen. So I'm curious what you think about it, Ron John. Yeah, Sam, first of all, Sam, I think has perfected the art of like fitting a blog post into a tweet with a screenshot. I wouldn't call it perfected. I hate reading those uh, things. You hate reading? I, I oh like God, it. I like it whenever I come unreadable. across one of okay. those. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. It's the Apple Notes uh, uh, extension. But okay. I, first of all, I'm so happy that this is a conversation right now because if you think about it, you know, like six years ago, this wouldn't have even been to uh, this wouldn't have even been anywhere on anyone's radar. We would have just built, 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 and then gone. And whatever happened, we would try to clean up the mess after. So I think it is a good thing that you know, like there's a lot of smart, responsible people who are tackling this. The other thing is, I'm actually not that concerned because ChatGPT sometimes it it could feel a little arbitrary as to what is blocked what's not dolly definitely sometimes feels like you know you try to type something and you know this isn't that bad and it's just like sorry we cannot produce this image um however i don't think this is like a bigger view of where this whole world is going i don't think these fairly generic large language models are the end solution and the end goal. And we that's how we will interact with them. I think already OpenAI, the, the business case and the value is going to be uh, their models like DaVinci, Babbage, Curieta that you can actually fine tune and train for your own use cases. That's where businesses are going to go. That's who's going to use them. And again, I think there's going to be all types of fine tuned models. There's probably going to be a white supremacist face fine-tuned model there's going to be uh if, if sam's worried about woke speech he doesn't have to interact with that type of model i think like it's going to 
get narrowed down for specific use cases. And we won't, we will move away from this idea that there's going to be just one overarching model that controls all speech. Because I do think right now that is what chat GPT is for most people interacting. And I do think it's crazy that I don't know who at OpenAI is making these decisions. I don't know how they approached it. Clearly they're concerned about the topic of content moderation or societal harm. And I guess that's a good thing, but being done behind closed doors, I don't think is good either. So, so I, I but, but I don't, I think in the medium term, that's not as much of an issue. I think, uh, I think all of this stuff is going to become much and much more customized, fine tuned. And I think we all types of models will be available. Services will be available. But just because it's going to be distributed, I don't think we've seen the end or really the beginning of this AI ethics fight. There, there will definitely because the people that control the technology will inevitably set the ethics or or be held accountable for the ethics, and that's going to be really interesting. I don't know. Maybe the government will be involved, and the government will govern somehow. As that terrifying yeah. that will sound to. But do you really want the people? government coming in and setting rules for what AI can and can't do? I mean, do I want Elon Musk? governing what can and cannot be tweeted uh, okay. is that a better solution <laughs> well what i mean his governance is basically tweet whatever <laughs> let's just end on this last last thing i'll say just let's think about twitter for a moment i mean there was all this hubbub about it i tweeted earlier that that twitter right now really kind of feels exactly the same as it was before elon except with uh, bigger losses than it had previously we, we, you know, we made it till the end before Right, the name this Elon came Musk up. came up. This right, is a, right. We well, you dropped this. it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. Now, I know. <laughs> hey, I've muted the, the. I've muted Elon Musk. I've muted Elon. I've muted Musk. It's made the experience a lot better. Not that I don't care what he's doing, but like at a certain point, Twitter just became Elon Central. Um, that being said, what do you think about the thesis? I mean, it doesn't really seem that that different. And I know you have a Mastodon uh, URL in your in your handle. How long is that going to stay? I I log on to Mastodon a number of times a day. Hmm. I think like I've limited, I still am on Twitter a fair amount. I will say I tweet less. Mastodon has been getting more and more interesting for me as a way of finding information, interacting with some of the people that I would interact with on with Twitter before. But I do think at this exact moment, um, I don't think, yeah, I can't think of anything crazy or main character-ish that uh, Elon's done for a couple of weeks now. And whatever the case of that is, maybe the Q4 was so bad that even he realized maybe I should tone it down. Maybe Tesla's stock dropping however many percent kind of forced his hand on this. But but at, at this exact moment, from a user standpoint, I think everything might be quiet. However, I don't know if you saw Tweetbot, apparently oh, yeah. uh, the API was cut off. There's glitches. I mean, if he cuts off Tweetbot, if they start making aggressive API decisions like that, I think he'll be right back in the center of conversation. And uh, and I don't, I don't even know who, who, who the most recent scandals. There's been plenty. They'll fade away and he'll be right back. That's right. Well, I think that will bring us home. For this edition, this Friday edition of Big Technology Podcast. It's been fun, Ranjan. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. We can do a whole episode next week about the future of Elon versus Mastodon, but I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. We, maybe we get Sam on when we talk about AI ethics. That'd be sweet. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Great having you as always. Again, 
Todd Bishop from GeekWire is coming on Wednesday. And then Ranjan and I will be back next week.